we glad there's power in his name. Amen. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're banking on in 2018. We're banking on that reality. And so far he's not let us down and I got to believe he won't to the very end. Take your Bible. Look at uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Last Sunday evening we were able to take just a few moments and uh, unveil our new theme for the year. And the new theme this year is found in Romans 12.1. It's your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. And so we took some time to do that last week and uh, kind of summarized the verse, uh, kind of broke it down a little bit. And over the next four weeks or so, we'll take a few moments and kind of break it down a little bit more maybe. Today, I want to talk to you today concerning your reasonable service. I I want to focus the first message, and I've entitled it simply this, The Goodness of God. The Goodness of God. We think about Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We can't help but think about the goodness of God right off the bat. And uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's go ahead and read the passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. Again, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This epistle was written to the Christians of Rome in about 58 A.D. At least that's what many believe, and that's the date that they've come to. It was written while Paul was at Corinth. He was staying in the house of a very wealthy Corinthian Christian by the name of Gaius. We see that in chapter 16, verse 23. Turn there if you would. Let's just take a look at that, so you don't need to take my word for it. Sometimes, you know, we... Uh, hear about biblical history, and it seems that you say, well, you know, especially when it comes to names. Well, that name means this, and that name means that. And I always would say to my professors, well, how do we know that name means that? Well, because it's, uh, well, you know, and I'd say, well, I don't know. I'm just curious. How, How do we know that? Does the Bible say that's what the name means? And very rarely is there really anything there. We say a lot of things like Mark means strong defender. Well, I believe that. But that don't make it true, right? I want to believe that because it's, it's positive on my side. Now, if it was like, you know, Mark means low life, then I'd be like, I think there's something wrong with that definition. Who defined Mark? You know what I'm saying? You know, well, you know, whatever, that's. But nonetheless, I, I, so I'm always curious about those things. I don't know about you, but I was. Romans 16, 23, Gaius mine host. Gaius mine host. And of the whole church saluteth you. Notice again, Gaius mine host. I don't know if you hosted me, where would you do? You'd be inviting me into your home. So it certainly appears that Gaius is where he was, uh, was residing at the time. It's where he was staying. Paul would write the letter and then have it carried to Rome by a a well-to-do widow named Phoebe. Look, if you would, there in chapter 16 again, verses 1 and 2. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centuria. It goes on to say that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saints, and that she assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succour of many and of myself also. This particular widow, this well-to-do widow named Phoebe, is the one who appears to have taken the letter to Rome. And Paul's saying, now listen, you meet her need. You help her in any way you can. You assist her in her endeavors there. She's there taking care of business or whatever she's doing. Help her. Meet her need. Provide for her. Keep her safe. Just go ahead and 
and, and, and watch over her in the midst of all that situation there, whatever business she hath need of you. So we find here that this epistle, the book of Romans, is written from Corinth. And it's written to the church at Rome and the believers at Rome. It's considered Paul's greatest masterpiece by many. Whether you're talking about intellectual or theological aspects, it's considered his masterpiece. It's considered his best work. And we know and understand that Paul's not really the author. We get it. We understand that God is. But what a tremendous, what an amazing book. This epistle, the book of Romans, it answers the question for us. Or should I say, it, well, it does. It says, how should a man be just with or before God? How, how's that the case? That's the question. How, what's the answer? Well, he explains that answer. He begins to share with us through the book of Romans the way to God. How to be justified. It's in this book that we also find our theme. And the verse... Romans 12.1, that kind of houses that theme. I want to dissect the verse a little bit over the next few weeks, probably the next four, maybe five. And I just want to bring out certain thoughts and certain things that I hope will be an encouragement and a help to each of us along the way. And today, as I said, I want to consider the goodness of God today. The goodness of God. And I want to do that by, first of all, a couple of things. I want to share a few things. First of all, I want to note mercy defined. And then I want to, uh, I want to n- notice mercy delivered. And last but not least, I'm going to share mercy driven. And I want to look at those three aspects today in the verse and see what we can't learn today and how we can't be encouraged and lifted up. And, boy, I'll tell you what, if you don't know that God's good, I think before the end of the service, you'll know He is. You really will. And uh, we'll see what God has for us uh, as well along the way in each life individually. Father, we come to you. Thank you for all you mean to us and all you do for us. Lord, as we embark on this new year and as we begin with our new theme, as we share and start this new series... May it be to your glory. May you be magnified and glorified in it. Lord, we know that, Father, you are the key to any success in the Christian life. You're the key to any success in life in general. And, Lord, we know as our Creator that we cannot possibly become or be everything you want us to be unless we are placing our all in your hands. Bless us as we dissect Romans 12.1, as we tear it apart a little bit, as we seek to dig into it slightly and understand maybe things that will benefit us and bless us and ultimately help us to grow and be stronger for you. We love you now. We need you. And Lord, if there be any in this room that have yet to put or place their personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they've yet to receive him as Savior and Lord. May they not leave here without that confidence, knowing that he is indeed on the throne of their life and that he is the Lord of their life. He's the Savior. Father, we'll thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. We consider this aspect of mercy defined. You think about mercy, and as we note the passage, it says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That word mercy is interesting. Defined, it means that benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender be better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment or inflict less than law or justice will warrant. Again, that's an interesting statement. And what we find here from, from uh, this definition of mercy is we realize that we're seeing that there's an element there where we have hurt or harmed possibly someone. And if mercy is being demonstrated, they're not going to give us what we really deserve. They'll give us less than what we deserve. Or maybe nothing that we deserve. Mercy. In the book of Numbers, chapter 14, verse 18, the Bible says, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. 
Forgiving iniquity and transgression. I mean, He is one that is long-suffering and of great mercy. What does that mean? That means then that the Lord, the, the God of heaven, the one that we claim as Savior and Lord, He is a merciful God then. He's a, of great mercy, which means He's not necessarily always going to give us what we truly deserve. When I think about mercy, my mind kind of goes back to the Colosseum days. You know, I envisioned two gladiators battling it out. I was asked to join a show years ago called Gladiator. Some of you may remember it. I'm just joking, by the way. But anyway, I, I mean, honestly, there was this, this gladiator. I don't know. You kind of envision. I don't know if you've ever seen. Uh, years ago, there was a show out called... Um, um, well, that's not the right one anyway, I guess. But anyway, uh, there was all kind of different shows with Jesus shows. You know, that we called them Jesus shows in the day and all these different people. And they'd show the Christians in the Colosseum or they would show two gladiators going at it. And boy, I tell you, one of those gladiators would be wounded. And there that gladiator would be laying on the ground. And the other gladiator would stand above them. And in some cases, they'd put their foot on their chest or they'd stand over them with their sword. They'd look up to the emperor and they'd look at the crowd. They say that that legitimately happened, that in many cases the crowd had the opportunity to either show mercy or no mercy. To grant life to the wounded or to simply give them death. You know, we have this idea that it was, okay, he lives, he dies. Do you know that they didn't use their thumb that way? Historically, that's not the case at all. Do you realize what it was really is that in, the, in those days, the thumb was a factor, but they would shake the thumb or they would go like that. You know, you got a sword, right? Running through. And the thumb being a bigger finger in a sense like that, easier to see, the crowd would hold it up. And if they wanted, if they wanted him to die, if they wanted to take his life, if they weren't willing to show mercy, they'd either, they said it was one or two, they'd shake it or they'd thrust it. They're not 100% sure. If they were going to show mercy, however, there he stands above him, ready to end his life, and the crowd would take their thumb and cover it with their hand. And they would hold it up. Hey, no mistake, there's no thumb, there's nothing protruding out of the hand. No, it's as though they were saying, sheathe your sword, put it back in. And there was nothing at all that that gladiator that was wounded could do. Nothing at all. They were truly at the mercy of that gladiator and the crowd. And they would just hold their breath wondering, will it be... Will it be no mercy? Or will it be mercy? The Bible describes mankind's plight as such. Take your Bible now. Let's do a little study over the next few moments. Look at Romans chapter 3. Mercy was all that the gladiator could hope for at that point. There was nothing else that could save him but mercy. I want you to note over in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, a very familiar passage. It simply says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible goes on to say in Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, you just need to look over there. It says simply this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. I mean, to be or to lie at the mercy of, to have no means of self-defense, to be totally and completely dependent on the mercy or compassion of another. That's exactly where you and I are today in relationship to God. And that's the state we find ourselves in our relationship. We are simply sinners. And the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And as sinners, we are deserving 
of the greatest of all punishments. And yet God in His mercy has extended that forgiveness and opportunity to be raised up again. God is merciful, by the way, to the worst offenders. The worst. You know, we are quick to view ourselves in comparison to others and think, well, certainly God would save me and my family. I mean, look at us. But those? Man, that's a tough case. That's a hard case. No, you don't understand, maybe. God's mercy is not limited even to the worst offender, the greatest sinner, the most wicked lawbreaker. He extends His mercy. That means that even though He knows that we are guilty, He doesn't always issue the punishment that we deserve. Mercy defined. But I want you to understand, as we look at the book of Romans, we see mercy delivered. In this particular passage that we've been looking at in chapter 12, verse 1, you got to understand that this passage is being read to a group of Romans during that period of time. He's saying, the apostle is saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. <laughs> you know, someone might say, well, you know, what does Paul mean, mercies? What's Paul getting at? He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. What, what are those mercies he's talking about? I mean, they couldn't look up in their concordance or their Bible dictionary. They couldn't define the word over the Internet. They had none of those tools. They had none of those uh, available or at their fingertips at that time. All they had was what Paul had sent them. All they had was the letter that he had written. All they had is what was being shared with them at that point. So they might look at it and say, okay, what does Paul mean by mercy? So they would say, well, what was Paul saying then? Let's go back to the first part of this epistle. Let's consider what he's already written. And they might remember how the apostle talked about how they were all sinners, whether Jew or Gentile. Look, if you would, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. What's he mean by mercies? Well, all we have is the epistle that he's written us. Let's go back and study it. Let's consider what we've already heard to this point. Let's go ahead and delve into the, the, what he's written in the previous chapters to define the word mercy, to understand what he's getting at and try to convey to us. And so they would. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 12 says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. I don't care if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. The fact is, we're all under sin. The fact is, is that we're all equally sinners. We are all unprofitable. We are all wicked and sinful in the sight of a holy, righteous God. That's what we see here in the passage. And they go back and they say, what's he mean by mercy? Well, first of all, he shares with us that we're sinners. And he makes it perfectly clear, abundantly clear, that that is the case. They'd continue reading and they'd learn that as sinners, both as Jews or Gentiles, we might be declared righteous by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. Look there in Romans 3.24. He says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God demands holiness and righteousness, and He is, worth, he is allowed to. He, he is bound by His own character. And the only acceptable payment for sin then has to be a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus Christ is the propitiation. The only acceptable sacrifice. Romans 4, 5. He continues in the, the, the epistle to say, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. But we're sinners and we are desperate sinners. And yet the Bible says we can... In, and incur His righteousness. We can have His righteousness. 
Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we were the enemies of God, the Bible tells us. And Paul makes that abundantly clear throughout the epistle. And yet we find ourselves now justified, just as if I've never sinned. We find ourselves righteous in the sight of a holy God. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood. We shall be saved. But you cannot throw that blood away. You gotta keep that precious blood. Don't, don't, don't sell it. Don't get rid of it. Don't dismiss it. Don't diminish its value. It is important. It is imperative. It is essential. It is absolutely necessary. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Boy, what in the world does he mean by these mercies? Well, first, he's taking us back into the, uh, as we review the letter we've already received. We have nothing else to go on. And we see here that Paul the Apostle then is telling us we're sinners, wretched sinners, undeserving of a punishment. And yet we find here, in spite of all of that, we might be declared righteous by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Like that he goes on now in the book of Romans to ensure that everybody understands that as a result of Christ's substitutionary death, the burden, the guilt, the condemnation of our sin can be lifted. We don't have to bear that guilt. We don't have to bear that shame. We don't have to live with regrets in that regard. Jesus was our substitute. He came and He bore the judgment that was rightfully ours as sinners. And as a result of that, we're able now to stand before God, before God who is holy and righteous. We're able to stand with a righteousness that is acceptable to Him. It's amazing, isn't it? Romans 5.19, look at that. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. We could ask the question, who, what man is it referring to? We'd all say, Adam. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Who's that man? Jesus Christ. Romans six twenty-two through 23. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. My, oh, my, now we find here, what's he talking about? What's he referring to? What's mercy really meaning here for the Apostle Paul? He goes back and says, boy, what wretched, wicked sinners you all are. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. There's nobody any better than the next. Oh, how excusable, unexcusable it is, oh, man, that you would say, oh, look at that one. Oh, how sinful and wretched is he. Oh, how horrible he or she is. And many times we take those verses out of context in chapter 3 and we start talking about judging. Who, who are you that judges another man? Well, what it's talking about is the Jew and the Gentile here. And they're looking at one another and one saying, oh, they're so wretched. They're so sinful. They're so wicked. And he's saying, aren't you too? Aren't you too? And then he says, oh, by the way, Jesus Christ came and died and shed his precious blood on your behalf. And by the way, even though you're a sinner deserving, deserving punishment like no other, nobody's business, I'm going to extend my mercy to you and I'm going to show you the love of God and I'm going to give to you eternal life and I'm going to allow you to live and I'm going to allow you to breathe and I'm going to allow you to be everything I intended you to be. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans, again, we're going to note some other things. We've seen, first of all, that <laughs> the Apostle Paul shares with us how we can be justified before God through faith, apart from any works that we do. We've already seen that he went on to address the principle of sanctification, uh, how we who have been declared righteous by God can now grow in righteousness. 
And now we find here in the 8th chapter of Romans, he speaks of our glorification. When shall, when we shall be ultimately conformed to the image of his Son. Look in Romans 8, verse 17, first of all. I like this, it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be, we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Wow, is that amazing? Glorified together. I mean, here he is in the passage, he's saying, and if children, talking about those who have truly placed their personal faith and trust in Christ, who are no longer depending on their own effort or their own ability, their own works to get to heaven. They've recognized that they're just wretched sinners deserving hell, and yet God in His mercy has granted them the privilege of being righteous in His sight through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and that ultimate sacrifice. And by faith we trust Him and we receive Him. And now He says, by the way, and if children, and we are children of God when we trust Him, then heirs. Hey, listen, you think about an heir. You think about somebody that's close to someone else, possibly a child or a family member or even a close, close friend. And their name is written as heir of the estate, heir of the family. And that means that everything that the person owns, everything that they possess ultimately transfers to them, becomes theirs. They are heirs of that estate. They're heirs of that property. They're heirs of anything and everything that they possess and own. And may I say today, as the children of God, we are heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that He has, everything that He possesses, everything that He owns is ours. It's amazing to think about that. See, these are some of the mercies. The mercy of justification. The mercy of sanctification. The mercy of glorification. Then in Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11, Paul the Apostle begins to discuss the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in relationship to other nations. And how God today is allowing the Gentile nations to be saved. Permitting them to experience and enjoy the blessings once only afforded to Israel themselves. Romans 11.30, if you would, please. Romans chapter 11, verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God. He's talking to the Romans now. Yet, yet have now obtained mercy. Through their unbelief. That's amazing, isn't it? He's saying to the Romans, which are Gentiles, For ye, for as ye in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Because they have rejected me. Because they have rebelled against me. I want you to know I've opened up and extended my salvation to you as well. You now experience mercy. As a result of their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. By the way, you'll never, never feel the need for God's mercy till you recognize that you don't deserve it. You know, one of the sad aspects, I believe, of our culture in our day is that everybody believes they're good enough. I don't have any needs. I have need of nothing. We see that in a Laodicean church attitude found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. But if you don't see a need for God's mercy, you'll never receive God's mercy. See, because Israel or the Jew rejected Christ again, the door of salvation was open to the Gentile. And due to their fall, you and I may experience faith. But God isn't finished with Israel yet, so let's not write them off. Despite their rebellion, Paul reminds us in his text in the book of Romans that they shall be saved in a magnificent display of God's grace in the future. They're going to be saved as in a day, the Bible says. What mercy God has extended to each of us, seeing we're so unworthy. So unworthy. The Roman says, I'm listening 
to this epistle and he comes to the place, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What's he referring to? What's he talking about? And he says, I have no concordance to go back to. I don't have a, a, a literated Bible. I don't have all the, the, the study tools. I simply have an epistle that was written. I'll go back and see what he's talking about then. And he's talking about mercy, the mercy of justification, sanctification, glorification, a new life, a new nature, a new home, a new family, a new outlook, a new hope, a new future, a new direction. God himself living in me, living in the person of the Holy Spirit. And when this life is over and my work here is done, may I say, Jesus, my Redeemer, my Lord, is going to wipe away all tears from my eyes and make all things new. You talk about mercies. I don't deserve any of that, and neither do you, friend. And yet God will provide that for us. You talk about the goodness of God. It's found in the mercy of God. We walk around in this life, if we're not careful, somehow believing that we deserve what God has given us. No, we don't. It's all His wonderful, marvelous mercy. Brings us then to mercy-driven. You know, we speak of people as being driven by ambition, driven by success, driven by revenge. That means the force or the fuel that motivates them, compels them and drives them is ambition or success or revenge. It means that the desire for ambition, the desire for success, the desire for revenge will at times cause them to neglect themselves and neglect others possibly. It will at times drive them to any length to achieve the goal that they'd set. Often they're willing to make any sacrifice needed. You know, as believers, we are never told to neglect others, but we are expected to be driven by mercy. We're expected to be driven by mercy. The word, therefore, in the passage, it says, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. That word, therefore, links God's demand for the believer's body with those mercies. I, be, I, I, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Who can fail to be moved by these things? These mercies. What is there within us that can possibly bring us to the place where we just go, well, so what? So what? The truth is that you would be very hard-pressed to find anything in this universe that is as, as, is as significant or that compares in the least to the mercy of God. So Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Because all that he has done, because of everything that he has put into place in your life, because of everything that he has performed in your life, because of all of that, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by those mercies, everything that we've talked about, everything I've shared in the book of Romans up to this point, that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. A man has to be pretty dull or indifferent or cold not to be moved by the mercies of God. And if a person is not moved by the mercies of God, you know, that ought to raise a red flag in our life. That ought to raise a red flag in our, before us and say, is it possible that they do not have the divine nature? Could it be that they've not been truly regenerated? Is it possible that they're not even God's child at all? We don't like to discuss those things because then somebody inherently says, well, you're obviously adding works to salvation. 
I didn't say that, did I? I said it ought to raise a flag in your life. If you honestly don't appreciate the goodness of God in your life to the point where it affects your actions and attitude, to where it affects the hands on you, the feet on you, the legs and the arms and the head and the neck and the body that you have, if that mercy doesn't affect your body, then let me tell you something. You ought to be wondering whether or not there's been mercy extended at all. It's amazing to me that the apostle waited 11 chapters to say, I beseech you. I beg you. He waited 11 chapters to say it. And if you're looking at chapter 11, it's he said it in 11 chapters. It's the 12th. Remember, he said 11. I know some of you will be looking. I don't see that in the 11th chapter. It's because it's in our text, chapter 12. It took him 11 full chapters to get to the place where it says, I beseech you. Isn't that amazing? I think it is. I think that's amazing. See, we ought to be mercy-driven. We ought to be mercy-driven. We ought to look back at what Christ has done for us. We ought to consider that cross and how He hung on that cross and suffered and bled and died and how He rose again the third day, how our sin has been washed away by His wonderful forgiveness. We ought to think about how He's indwelled us and how He's empowered us and how He's enabled us. We ought to realize that we're not just simply saved. We are heirs and that means we've got a heaven to look forward to. We've got the golden streets to look forward to. We've got a new body, a new home. We've got a new everything. All things new. Why? Because of that mercy. We ought to be driven by that. And every time we want to sit down and get lazy, every time we want to quit and give up on God, we ought to look back at what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we ought to reread Romans chapter 1 through 11 and recognize and realize the wonderful goodness of God and the mercies of God and say, I'm going to lay myself on an altar. It's time we get back to biblical Christianity instead of this junk we call Christianity today in our culture. No sacrifice. Only that which is comfortable. Only that which is convenient. Well, you don't have to sell out to be a good Christian. Oh, that's right. You only have to lay yourself on an altar. I don't know about you, but ask the lamb. He had to sell out on an altar. Ask that bullock if he had to sell out on an altar. Ask that pigeon or that dove if he had to sell out on that altar. Do you know they laid themselves on an altar? They never got back up. But we, the Bible says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That means you lay yourself on that altar. And just like Isaac got up and walked away, so will you. You'll be able to live, but as a living sacrifice. Let me ask you, what's Christianity costing you today? What's it costing me? Is it costing you anything to be the Christian God's called you to be? Because if it's not, I wonder if we're in sacrificial at all. I wonder if we've ever even laid ourselves on an altar. Ever been a dream, ambition? Ever been any goals? Ever been any aspirations you've laid aside that you've put on that altar? I sat here a moment ago, and I'm just going to tell you, I don't usually share things like this. But I watched my son up here in the pulpit leading music and ultimately stood here and sang a song. And I thought to myself, one day, one day... One day, he will not be here singing anymore. He'll be out in a pastorate of his own. He'll be out in evangelism on his own. He'll be a missionary on his own. He won't be up there singing anymore not to find somebody else to do what he's doing. And I sat there lamenting the fact that I'll not see him forever here. But I laid that on an altar a long time ago. And I said, Lord, I settled that one a long time ago. When I put myself on an altar, he's not mine to do with, he's yours. What is it that you're holding back? What is it you keep to yourself? Have you laid yourself? Because if you'll lay yourself on that altar, if you'll be mercy driven, you'll say, I can't help but do this. I've got to be willing to sacrifice. I've got to be willing to give. I've got to be willing to go for Jesus Christ. There's no way I can get around it. I've got to do what I've got to do for him. Nothing should hold me back. His mercy, His goodness is so good. And therefore, I'll lay myself on that altar and present myself a living sacrifice. 
We can't even read our Bibles consistently. We struggle with praying. We struggle with being just a Christian, let alone a sacrificed one. This year in 2018, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I wonder, are you saved this morning? Are you saved this morning? Have you experienced the mercy of God in your life? You know, I know I'm a sinner. I recognize how vile and wretched I am. I know I deserve punishment. I know that it should just simply be. I know I deserve that. Thank God for mercy. He put the sword away. And instead He extended mercy to me. He gave me what I never would have deserved, grace. He withheld punishment, mercy. And then gave me what I didn't deserve, grace. Look in Romans 2, 1 through 4, and we're closing with these passages. This is the conclusion. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Remember, there's an issue going on between the Jew and the Gentile. There's been some debate and there's been some issues here throughout the early portion of Christianity because God had been dealing with Israel. God had been dealing with that nation in particular and specifically. Now in the New Testament, we see that Israel ultimately rejects God. We see that final rejection in chapter 7 of the book of Acts with Stephen. And ultimately, he turns his attention now not just to the Jew, but now he turns it to the Gentile. By the time we arrive at chapter 10, we see the Gentile being saved just like we are today, basically, by faith. Oh, in that day, there's still signs because he's trying to prove to uh, the, 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 the writers and to those Christians in those days that he's in the midst of it all. And it's a sign for the Jew to understand that Gentiles can be saved. And so, therefore, tongues are a part of all that. They're not necessary today because only the Jew requires a sign. And God's not dealing with Jews now. He's dealing with Gentiles because the Gentile, the Jew, had rejected him. One day, whenever we're taken up, the church is, whether you're Jew or Gentile, in the body of Christ. By the way, a Jew and a Gentile are no different than each other. We are all found in Christ the same way, by faith in Jesus. A Jew goes to hell just like a Gentile does. It doesn't put his faith and trust or his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So nonetheless, now we see there's a Gentile salvation taking place. But back here in the book of Romans, just 25 years after Jesus Christ's death, we see there's still issues here to some degree. And he says to the Romans, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. Now again, don't misunderstand what he's saying. This judgment isn't simply, well, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol and getting drunk. Don't judge me. That's not, the, that's not the context of the passage at all. You shouldn't be cheating on your wife. Don't judge me. You shouldn't be doing this. or you shouldn't. No, that's not it. There are things that are spelled out in Scripture. I don't have to judge. God's already judged it. But we're talking now about this idea of sinfulness and an attitude toward one another. Look what it says. Therefore thou art in, in, inexcusable. You have no excuse, buster. Whosoever thou art that judgeth, for that wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. See, he's not saying to me, well, as long as you're not drinking, you can go ahead and rip everybody that is. No, that's not what he's saying either. As long as you're not doing what you're saying to others, you're doing to them, then that's not judging. Uh, you're, you're, you're okay. You're excusable. You're not unexcusable. Now, again, the context has to do with Jew and Gentile here. Notice he goes on to say, For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And think of thou this, O man. Thou judgest them which do such things and doest the same. Thou that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. You really think you will? Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Don't you realize, are you going to despise His goodness? 
Let me ask you, sinner, today. You're a wretched, wicked, vile sinner today in the sight of a holy God. You are a protrude, you are putrefying sore. You are simply pus in the sight of a holy God. May I say that sounds disgusting, but that's exactly what we are today without Jesus Christ. We are wretched. We are vile. We are sinners. But may I say, may I say, His mercy has been extended to you. His mercy has been given to you. And you simply got to stop despising that mercy. And you got to receive and accept His forgiveness. And recognize your sinfulness and His righteousness. And say, oh God of heaven, I want your righteousness. Stop judging. Stop looking around you. Stop looking at someone that's more wretched and more vile than you even. And look to a holy God and realize... That his, he is long-suffering, he is forbearing, and he's putting up with you to this very moment. And know that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Get saved this morning. Come to Jesus Christ. and Have your sin washed away and receive his mercy, his forgiveness. And know that justification. Experience his sanctification. Enjoy His glorification one day. As believers, I wonder, are you mercy-driven today? Does your mind constantly go back to the goodness of God in your life? Do you remember yourself, or should I say, do you remind yourself of the many mercies that are yours? And do those mercies cause you to willingly present yourself a living sacrifice today? I pray that they will. Maybe today we need to come to an altar and just say, Lord, here I am. <laughs> Ain't a whole lot, but here it all is. And I'm just going to lay it on the altar today. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let's offer it all to him today. In Jesus' name. Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for your love and grace in our life.